magic to it. When I'm at Ramah, I am home. Set the stage for us. Tell us about your history with Ramah. Well, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up going to Ramah. I went to another Jewish camp called Sedgwin, which had a huge impact on me Jewishly, and you know, lifelong friends. Um, but I always heard of Ramah. Ramah was always just a little bit too Jewish, a little bit too religious for me, which is quite ironic given what I wound up doing <laughs> in my life. Um, but when I went to Israel on my junior year abroad program, back way back in 1978, I met so many Ramah people who were so encouraging of me to take my Jewish leadership to the next step and be more serious about it and having to spend the summer at Ramah camps, at a Ramah camp. And I remember um, basically signing a contract with Camp Ramah in the Berkshires, um, but asking to get out of that eventually because I met some people from Camp Ramah in California. Um, I had never been west of New Jersey before. And um, <laughs> it just seemed like California, wow, what a dream that would be. Um, so I was hired for $900 to be the Rosh Tefillah of Camp Ramon, California for the summer of 1979. And that's really when my life started to change. I was, I had just taken the, the LSATs. I was uh, graduating Brown University. I was applying and I eventually got into NYU Law School. Um, which I, which I attended, but even during law school, I was sneaking away to go to California Ramah every chance I could get during the year for weekends. Um, and I even wound up working in a summer law firm so I can spend Shabbat, Shabbatot up at camp. Oh, wow. um, but so after, uh, an important event for me was the end of the summer of 1979. I had a blast as Rosh Tefillah. I was probably working about three or four hours a day and, you know, playing a lot of tennis and basketball and going out for ice cream with friends and just, you know, just having an amazing, amazing summer. Um, and then Alvin Mars, the director, and Glenn Karansky, the assistant director, pulled me aside and said, we want you to be a Rosh Da next summer. And I looked at them with these wide eyes and I said, are you crazy? <laughs> you want me to walk around with that clipboard and you want me to work 18 hour days and be in charge of everything? And I just remember Alvin saying to me, Mitch, you're going to do it and you're going to thank me. And you know what? I did it. Right. I wound up being a Rosh Hashanah for the next several years. And I cannot thank Alvin enough for really pushing me and encouraging me to do that. Um, Glenn, of course, as well. Um, those are two of my real early mentors in Ramah. Um, Robin Graff as well. The three of them, Glenn, Robin, and Alvin, were quite a management team. Um, and I was a Rosh Hashanah for the 12-year-olds, and then I was Rosh Mahon for the oldest kids for a couple of years. And it, the, the, it was intoxicating. The, the, um, the sense the of Jewish leadership. Ever. What's that? The best job ever. It's the best job ever. And the sense of leadership, the sense of influence on people's lives, sense of learning how to lead your own life and just be, you know, be organized. I never had... I was never in charge of anybody else or anything else other than myself. Um, it was life changing. And although I was in law school um, and really loving law schools, um, I really loved law school, the intellectual challenges. I started taking courses in Talmud and I started thinking about what it might be to be a rabbi, maybe have a career with Ramah. And so when I finished law school, I took a year off and went 
back to Israel, back to Hebrew University. Um, it was technically my first year of rabbinical school at JTS. Um, I met Carrie that year, I met my wife, uh, who the person who was going to become my wife, um, who coincidentally happened to be from California. So <laughs> kept me going back to California. Um, and then after two years working full-time as a litigator in a big New York City law firm, which again, I enjoyed, but I couldn't see doing that for my entire career. At that point, I left. I said, uh, I told the partners in the law firm that I was going to rabbinical school. And they said, wow, we've never had anyone leave us for that reason. We can't argue. We like you, Mitch, but we can't argue with that. Um, I, I, you know, as soon as I re-enrolled at JTS to continue rabbinical studies, I wound up signing up again to go back to California Ramah as the assistant director in the summertime ah. for, for the now director, Glenn Karansky, um, who, again, was a is a dear friend and mentor. Um, so in the summers of 87 and 88, newlywed, uh, not a lot of cares in the world, um, had saved up a bunch of money from working in law, in big law for a few years. Um, so I was just really enjoying the Jewish leadership aspects of it. And then when I graduated law school, uh, um, graduated rabbinical school in 19, uh, I was going to my last year of rabbinical school in 1989-90, um, there was a new national director named Shelley Dorf who called me up and said, there's this place called Canada. It's a little bit north of New York State. <laughs> um, I said I had once been there. Um, would you have any interest in being the director of Camp Vermont in Canada? Because this terrific director named Judy Marcos, who was about to have her third child, um, has done five years, will have done five years as director and is ready to move on. And without going into a lot of details, one thing led to another. And Harry and I said, let's go to Toronto and let's see how it worked out. Mm -hmm. So I wound up being director of Camper Mind Canada for 11 years, the first three of which we lived in Toronto. For family reasons, we wanted to move back to New York. Mm -hmm. um, I actually accepted a job after three summers as the assistant national director of Young Judea and the oh. director of Camp their Camp Tel Yehuda for teens. Um, but at the end of the summer of 1992, Gloria Silverman, one of my just amazing mentors at Camp Ramah in, Cal in Canada, uh, representing the board of directors, knocked on my door, just as all the kids had left camp, and said, you know what, Mitch, we've done a search for a new director. We're really not happy with any of the finalists. Would you do it long distance for one year while we continue the search? And after I thought about it, I responded by saying, I'm happy to do it, but I would want it to be open-ended. If I do a great job, why not have this continue without okay. indefinitely? And that's basically what happened. I told Hadassah and the Young Judea folks I wasn't going to take that job. I continued for eight years as director of Capramaya in Canada. And I didn't leave until my high school in White Plains, New York, my, my kids' Schechter school in White Plains, New York, was building a high school and asked me if I'd be their first principal. So I did that for three years and then what happened is that in uh, 2002, 2003, Chancellor Ismar Sharish and Skip Thickness, the Chancellor of the Seminary and the President of the National Rock Commission approached me about um, Shelley retiring and the possibility of me becoming the new national director. And that seemed like a dream come true. Mm -hmm. So in 2003, I started this job. Amazing. Amazing. 
It's so humbling to listen to you speak about your history and your trajectory through the organization. It's really fascinating. Well, I've I've been privileged to, you know, to have jobs I want to make transitions when I wanted to make transitions um, and just to have incredible amount of sipu nefesh of uh, real soul satisfaction. Uh, a lot of headaches in all these jobs, obviously, but uh, I used to say that in school, it was about 80% headache and 20% nachas and in camp, it's mm -hmm. the reverse. Um, so that's just the difference between school, school. Heads of school are very, very important. And I love being principal and starting a new school, but uh, I think the influence you have on, on a broader array of people through Ramah is, is just, it was, it was more of a better, better fit for me. And, um, and here we are, you know, 18 years in. I'm going to ask you more about that later, but go back to your first summer at Ramah Canada. Tell us about what it was like. What was your team like? Set the stage. Wasn't much of a team. I mean, I was, a, I was 31, brash, um, <laughs> a little clueless. Um, and while I knew a lot about as having been the summer assistant director, I knew a lot about Pulot Erev and Chugim and leadership training for the junior counselors and other people in camp. I knew nothing about recruitment and budgeting and fundraising. I knew nothing about fixing broken sewage systems, which Camp Ramon Canada was infamous for. Um, former, former director, when they heard I was the new director, former directors, including Judy, but people even before that, a uh, guy named Epi, Seymour Epstein, and Neil Cooper, and, <laughs> and David Zissenwein, they all said to me, you must, I hope you learned a lot about Biuv. I said, what's Biuv? Biuv is sewage. I hope you'll learn a lot about sewage if you can be the director of Camp Ron Canada. Um, and, and sure enough, I may be out of order here, but sure enough, one of the greatest crises I had in 11 years as director of Camp Ron Canada <laughs> was that knock on my door by Steve Remington, the head of maintenance. I think it was the summer of 1996. He knocked on my door about five in the morning and woke me up um, one morning towards the end of the summer and said, uh, Mitch, we, uh, we lost 100,000 gallons of sewage. I said, what do you mean you lost 100,000? Where did it go? <laughs> well, apparently the, the newest of the three sewage lagoons had sprung a leak. <laughs> Um, and it went down into the aquifer and the neighbors had to boil their water and I was on national TV being interviewed. Um, and it was a, it was a real difficult time. We were buying bottled water for the whole cottage neighborhood, neighborhood cottages. Um, and that forced the camp, us, the camp into borrowing a lot of money and, uh, spending over a million dollars on the Cadillac of sewage systems, which, which is um, now still in operation. The smells in the camp went away, the horrible smells. Um, and so people like you, Sid, you know, <laughs> when you became a little bit older, you were able to benefit from a... Uh, new sewage system. A sewage system that was much, much better. <laughs> to be completely honest, I got a little tip to, to definitely make sure that I asked you about the sewage system. <laughs> Yeah. So, but the, the good news was that we, we, the Camp Ramon Canada that I inherited was not a fundraising organization. They raised a little bit of money. 
Um, but Sid Zwei, who had Zichronola Racha, who had been the very dedicated president, and that is that, who had been the very dedicated president of the camp, I think for 17 years prior to when I took over, um, he, he believed, he was an accountant, he believed in fiscal integrity, um, and he was not someone who was comfortable with, with philanthropy um, in the Jewish community. When I took over Ab Flat, took over as the, um, as the new president, and we worked together for six or seven years. He was an amazing, amazing president. He's still a good friend, him mm-hmm. and his wife, Phyllis. Um, and, and him and Phyllis and uh, Phyllis's brother, Harold Wolf, um, we started talking those years about what major philanthropy looked like at camp. And we all agreed that they would give, the first, I think it was one of the first million dollar gifts to Jewish camping anywhere ever, um, that they would give a million dollars, which allowed us mm-hmm. to build the Beit Gadol, would allow us to create a very robust scholarship fund to do family programming throughout the year, just to really launch the camp into the next, towards the next century mm-hmm. um, in, in a real tremendous way. And having that kind of financial, those kind of financial resources encourage many other people to give instead of giving a few thousand a year to give, you know, a few tens of thousands of a year, um, and, then, and then hundreds of thousands. So we, th- that really got the camp started with fundraising, which you know continues to this day. And it happened fortuitously at a time when we had to borrow a million dollars to fix the sewage system. So it was all in those that late '90s that it all sort of came together. So as you as you talk about these really important people within your your career with Ramah Canada. Who do you think was one of the most influential people that you worked with? Well, I, I certainly mentioned Ab as just this wonderful president. You know, um, Stan Friedman and Sheldon Diesenhaus were next presidents who were also wonderful people I, I dealt with. Um, Gloria Silverman, I've mentioned already. Gloria and her husband, Rabbi Israel Silverman, were, were just amazing mentors and pillars of that community. Um, again, Gloria taught me so much about how to be, how to, how to, how to run camp. And then I would say, you know, I had three key partners for most of my, most of my 11 years. Mm-hmm. And they were Howard Black, who was a board member my age, um, who somehow we worked out a deal where he would come up and suspend his, his law practice or continue his law practice up at camp and serve as assistant director, um, okay. the summer assistant director, Debbie Spiegel, who was the year-round assistant director, who just knew every child and every allergy and every family, and she was just such an extraordinary resource for that camp. And um, Dennis Meister, who I hired um, after my first few years with Ron White, we hired Dennis Meister to be the uh, you know, direct the business manager handling all the logistics and finance, and we were we were a great team together. I just I, I, I loved working with all those people. You know, there's so many others: Margot Silverman as as the camp nurse, and Steve Goldstein and Marlene, and yeah. Carrie as Yoet said, and you know, Chuck Diamond played a key role. And I, I mean, I'm I'm leaving out so many um, wonderful people, but um, you know, having having uh, John and Paul, the two brothers. Uh, running the kitchen um, back in the day, um, you know. I guess uh, Paul's son. No, no, I'm mixing that up. Martin was the the key chef, and Martin's son Brian now runs runs the kitchen. Um, Steve Remington and Ralph were the head of maintenance. So having having the Agam, 
maintenance, mirpa'a, commissary, having all those systems run well, and 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 of course sewage getting better and better, mm-hmm. um, made my <laughs> life <clears throat> made my life a lot better. Um, I think one of the most important developments that we did, other than just physically rebuilding the camp and fixing up the camp over the the course of that decade in the '90s, was starting the TikTok program. Um, We're gonna get there. Yeah. So anyway, I just throw that one out there, which had a big impact. Yeah. So you know what? Let's let's go there. Working with with Mitch Parker, what was it like developing the TICFA program, and and what were your inspirations in in doing so? Right. Well, California Ramah, where I had come from, had a TICFA program, and it was just so powerful and natural that when we went to Carrie and Carrie worked as a teacher in the TICFA program. Um, back in 87 and 88. And so we got to Camp Ramah in Canada. It just seemed wrong not to have it there. It just seemed missing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not being a camp of great philanthropy, uh, it was expensive to start a, a TICPA program. I actually worked with Debbie Spiegel's husband, Randy Spiegel, who at the time was working at the Federation with their um, with certain funding projects. And together we were able to raise, I remember this vast sum, we were able to raise $60,000 to start a TICPA program. What amazed me was, well, I had complete board support and Ab Flat was a huge and continues to be a huge fan of TICPA and a supporter of TICPA. Um, and in fact, his brother-in-law, Harold Wolf, um, after whose parents, you know, the camp was named, um, Max and Beatrice Wolf, he, he has attended every one of our bike rides in Israel um, for TICPA. Um, hopefully we can do that again in 2021. Post-pandemic, please God. Um, Anyway, although I had the board support, I did not have the staff support. Mm -hmm. So many of the staff members, good, wonderful people in camp, just felt that we might be hurting Ramadan. I was still a relatively new director, and there wasn't wasn't a week that went by in my first few summers when someone who had been at camp for 10 years said to me, you know, you're ruining camp. Why can't we walk around the Migrash and create that dust bowl before we go to Kabbalah Shabbat? And why, why can't we pick the way we send kids out on trips? Why do you have to do it, you know, this way? And why do Mumchim have to go to Tefilot in the morning? And, you know, <laughs> I try to get a little bit tougher on drinking, you know, and removing alcohol from camp. Not so easy, given some of the, some of the uh, traditions. Like, why am I... Why am I creating rules for Agam staff? Agam staff is an independent fiefdom, which the director should have no control over. <sighs> no, I, there's a lot of great stories to tell. Some I can't tell. Um, but uh, for Tikva, a lot of these people were just thinking like, you're going to ruin camp. Mm-hmm. I, I, must, I must jump to the end and just say that all these people, it took about 48 hours of Tikva for them to right. think that it was the greatest thing ever. Um, and that's continued ever since. We started it in 1993. Uh, we, we planned it starting in 92. We raised the money. We, we started the program. And I remember the phone call to Mitch Parker, who had been a teacher at camp. Um, he was in Buffalo working in a school. And he, I forget exactly, he was a psychologist. I forget exactly the work he did. But he knew a lot of people in the world of um, dealing with special education and with children with disabilities. And I said to him, do you know anybody who might want to be a, the director of Tikva? And as often happens serendipitously or not, 
Um, he called me back a day later and said, how about me? <laughs> and he was a brilliant director of Tikva. Uh, he brought in some great, great staff members, uh, mostly from the outside. Um, by, I guess, by the second or third year, there was no problem recruiting from the inside. It became one of the most popular areas for people to, um, to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's sort of fun to me to think about my own daughter, who's a leader in that field now as an educator, Tali, yeah. um, you know, when she was, she was three years old, right? She was three years old when the, uh, when we started the, the TICFA program. Um, and now that's her career. So sort of exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Mitch, you mentioned a little bit before about the tripping program. And I want to talk more about that and how that program came to be so impressive and something that Vermont Canada is really known for. Um, And further, you know, the camp actually owns campsites on Skeleton Lake. Can you tell us about how that program grew and flourished and some of the challenges you faced with that? Yeah, one of the differences one of the many differences between California Ramah and Canada Ramah for me was the size of the Agam staff and particularly the tripping staff. Mm-hmm. So the, the notion that people go out um, in small groups, not with any senior staff member, with relatively small groups um, with young trippers as the leaders with a counselor, um, sometimes for two days, sometimes for five days, um, it's a little bit terrifying. Remember, this is also, remember we had these big, thick satellite phones, which costed like $10 a minute to operate. And um, <laughs> they were there for emergency purposes and half the times they didn't even work. Right. Um, so there's really, you know, there's really not a lot of communication going on. And now I'm the director, I'm in charge of the health and safety of children, teenagers who are going off on these three, four, five night trips. Now, of course, as we know in camping and in most things in life, the more, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Right. Um, so the human growth and even the Jewish growth that took place on these trips was magnificent, mm-hmm. um, unparalleled in terms of other kinds of Ramah experiences. Yeah. Um, so it was, Camp Ramah Canada has always been very fortunate to be a leader in having that. Little did I know that a decade later I'd be helping one of our trippers establish a new a new uh, Camp Ramah the Rockies, which was based very much on Rabbi Eliyahu Bach as a tripper from Canada, you know, from Canada wanting to build a whole camp around, around outdoor adventure. Um, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I, I do remember in my early years being very, very uncomfortable with the safety protocols of the tripping program. Uh, we had some very, very strong young men who were the leaders of the tripping program who typified the, the kind of people who did not want the director getting involved in their decision-making. And while they were very skilled people and good people, um, it was my feeling, and much of this is training from Alvin Mars, that every area of camp has to be infused with the Jewishness of Vermont. Right. And so the, the people weren't, they weren't taking tefillin with them on trips. That seemed wrong to me. They weren't taking any kind of pseudorim. Um, they weren't planning in any kind of spirituality. Um, they were great trips, great adventure trips, but this is Ramah. Mm-hmm. So we, we worked hard to try to build in more Jewish educators into the tripping program over the years. Um, you know, you succeed in some ways, you don't succeed in other ways. Um, but I think we, we saw some partial success. Um, 
Yeah. I still remember one of the first calls I got in 1990 from a, actually an Ohio family. Um, I won't say the name, um, but I got a call. I got a call from the trip. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm mixing this up. It was a Mag Shimin trip. The 15-year-olds, they were out in Algonquin. And I got a call that um, there had been a very serious injury. Someone's, an axe had fallen on, had, okay. like someone was, uh, an axe had slipped while being used and seriously cut a 15-year-old boy's foot. And he was being helicoptered out and taken to a, a hospital. And that night was was really, really difficult for me because A, I didn't know what to say to the parents. The father was a doctor in Ohio and I didn't know what to say to the parents because we didn't have any information or any communications link yet. Um, it turns out the boy was fine and he didn't even lose a toe or anything like that, but it could have, it could have been much worse. But I remember hearing the, the safety protocol of, of, you know, there was basically, I think it was 11 kids and two staff members. And so one staff member had to put the injured child in a canoe and paddle an mm -hmm. hour down the, yeah. the lake or the river. You, I mean, you know, these places better than I do, Sid, um, but they had to, uh, get, get him treatment and, yeah. and leave behind, leave behind one staff member, but the rest of the kids all scared what's going to happen to their friend. Um, again, thankfully it turned out okay, but it, it just highlighted for me how critical it was to reinforce safety procedures mm -hmm. um, in that program and in all programs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the trips on the lake, you know, for the younger kids to Gioria, to uh, Ramah Island, um, to Weaver, Weaver's Bay, which the campus has since sold off, um, High Lake, just extraordinary experiences. So just to get in a canoe yeah. and just to be far away from the structures of camp and just to bond and to get a sense of uh, nature is just a very, very powerful part of the Ramah Canada experience. And maybe we've we've already touched on this in talking about the TICPA program and the tripping program, <coughs> but what do you see as the most unique aspect of Vermont Canada? You mean compared to the other Vermont camps? Yeah, what makes it special compared to um, other campuses? You know, I, I would certainly certainly waterfront, certainly Agam, um, water skiing and the sailing program and the tripping program, and it just becomes a major focus um, for such a large portion of the population. Mm -hmm. I think there's an informality at Ramak Canada that is good in some ways and bad in some ways. Um, challenging, I should say, not bad. Um, that there's, uh, you know, from a discipline point of view, um, there's just a, it's just a much more relaxed atmosphere. Um, than some of the other camps which have a little bit more shigra or routine built into the day. Um, so some people love that about Canada Ramah. You know, weather, weather makes a difference. So being, you know, Ramah, Canada, and Ramah, Wisconsin are very, very similar climates. Um, quite chilly early in the season and late in the season. Um, not a lot of heat wave days, but some. Um, and just all very, you know, water-based, you know, everything based around the waterfront mm -hmm. and the Agam. And the Agam. Um, 
the other things that are uh, the ruach. I I think the ruach at Camp Ramah in Canada is very very special. Again, it's hard to compare because every Ramah camp has incredible ruach. Um, sure. You know, and one of one of the great joys and satisfactions I have as national director is that when I see something great at one camp, I'm able to convene cohorts so that there's a lot of sharing going on. So mm -hmm. nothing makes me happier, even though I might have nothing to do with the innovation, nothing makes me happier than to see an innovation at Poconos, which then goes to Wisconsin and California, something in Canada, which then goes to the Roman Berkshires. Yeah. And that's the way we keep Ramah, that's really the way we keep Ramah uh, unified and similar from camp to camp is because there's so much sharing among cohorts. One of my top priorities in my early years as being national director was just saying, let's get as many Ramonics, many Ramah staff members from different cohorts together throughout the year so that there can be sharing, that there can be learning, and that there can be, you know, the best practices can really just move all throughout the movement. And I've seen that a lot. I can give so many examples of that. Um, whether it has to do with uh, Sudashli sheet singing or it has to do with outdoor adventure programs or great art programs, um, innovations in tefillah. Um, you know, you also, you also deal, you also allow for some of the more rowdy things to spread throughout the movement, <laughs> like certain banging practices during Birkat I was going to say, I want to press you a little bit more on, on the Ruach and my vision as a very young camper of Mitch Cohen standing in the Hadar Ochel at Ramah Canada asking for complete silence in the middle of Birkat Hamazon. Yes, yes. Well, the, this again, I came from California, Ramah. Alvin Mars uh, did run a really pretty strict uh, a strict camp and I think the idea was that while we're all friendly and fun and it's camp and it's the summertime we want to be relaxed there is a point of respect of dignity of decorum that is appropriate from time to time and I always felt like I, one of the things I'd scream out you know Zot Tefillah <laughs> Right. This is not the during during this singing we could get up and dance and bang and all that. But there is there is a role uh, to play for serious prayer. It only takes a few minutes and it is still fun. But for Bikatamazon, I didn't want people standing on the benches. I didn't want people getting up. I didn't want people banging. So when people did bang or add in all these extraneous words and all that, <laughs> I, which you know you laugh at now and wouldn't bother me at all around my own kitchen table. Um, when hundreds and hundreds of people doing are doing it together, it sort of takes away from the idea that you're thanking God for the privilege of having food to eat mm -hmm. or thanking God for the privilege of being Jewish and having a homeland in Israel. Whatever else we're praying for in Birkat Amazon with some very, very important themes. Now, you know, is the worst thing in the world when people bang? I'm certainly, I've seen in the last 20 years since I've been director of Vermont Canada, uh, that at Canada and throughout the movement, that standards have slipped, but that's part of society mm -hmm. in general where um, things are a little bit less formal. So I don't know if anybody, any camp, you know, I actually, there are a camp or two that still has some decor during Bikatama zone. <laughs> um, but I'm, a, I'm old school that way. Uh, so another special thing about Ramah Canada, it obviously plays a unique role as being the camp with 
maybe the largest international contingency. Yeah. Can you speak to some of the challenges of having both an American and a Canadian population and um, some of the, the uh, differences in maybe the, the Canadian conservative movement versus the American conservative Judaism and how those came together at Ramah Canada? Yeah, so there's so many things to talk about with regard to the American-Canadian mix at Canada. First of all, I think the camp is so much more rich because of that mixture. Having said that, Canadians are not so different than Americans. Um, (laughs) The differences are, you know, New Yorkers and Californians are quite different in some ways. So Canadians, it's just just another region. Um, So a few points to make. One point is that when I was director during the uh, 90s, we had probably 55 or 60% Americans and, you know, less than half, fewer than half were Canadians. Um, I know we worked very, very hard during those, during the night. When I started, enrollment was, was in the lower 300s. When we finished, we were going towards 400. I remember one of the things I felt that camp could not have 400 kids. So I was like, 399 or bust, you know, like, you know, <laughs> and I know the, the year that I left the board and the new director allowed 427. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I remember that number. Um, and I, I thought it was just a little bit overcrowded that way. Um, but having a very full camp at 399 back then, and you know, they've added bunks and more facilities since, right. but having, having um, the American Canadian mix that year, in the early years and having more Americans um, created some real great opportunities and some real great challenges. So one of the challenges was as the conservative movement struggled with egalitarianism, Mm -hmm. all of our American synagogues were egalitarian. None of our Canadian synagogues were egalitarian. And, you know, while some people saw that as a problem, I saw that as an amazing, amazing uh, richness. Where else could, American kids learn that that they can have egalitarianism, but it's not the only expression of Judaism. They could respect people who didn't want that. Certain and, and mostly on the other side, where could the Toronto kids, you know, the, the where could the Toronto kids in particular learn about egalitarianism with some great women role models? And um, it just for me, it was it, there were some difficulties because everybody, you know, religious policy, everybody wants it their way and wants mm-hmm. Ramat to be in their image. Um, I thought it was fantastic the way the camp developed over the course of the 90s from having almost no egalitarianism to by the end of the 90s being basically a fully egalitarian camp with one or two optional non-egalitarian minions for those who still wanted that. Um, and I thought that went relatively well. <clears throat> one of the problems... Um, and it's almost funny at this point, but when you lived through it, it wasn't so funny. One of the problems that we faced was with American staff members. You know, you go, you go to camp for many years, then you want to come back as staff. So mm-hmm. the Canadians, it's seamless. For Americans, all of a sudden, you're, you're butting your head up against the Canadian laws, which are trying to protect summer jobs for Canadians and don't want American influx. Mm-hmm. Um, so every, every American had to get a visa. And every American had to get a chest x-ray every single summer in order to work at camp. And their doctors were telling them it's not good. And, um, and it was just a real, a real hassle. So there were Americans 
sneaking across the border and saying they were tourists. And, you know, in the early 90s, we weren't checking that. And then as the Canadian laws got a little stricter, <clears throat> we needed to check that more carefully. And then, of course, there was the famous summer of the deportation. Right. And that was, I don't know, maybe around 97. Um, you know, where we were now being very, very careful about making sure all of our Israelis had the proper documentation. And we were being pretty careful about making sure that all of our Americans had documentation, but not 100% careful. And um, the first day of second session, I get a call from the Ontario Provincial Police um, telling me that they caught... Oh, boy. That they, they, they asked me, is there someone named Dan Mink working at that camp? American, <laughs> an American from Buffalo? I said, uh, yes, Dan Mink is the head of our woodworking program, wonderful man. In fact, his son is coming to camp today on one of the buses for second session from Buffalo. Well, apparently his son, apparently when Dan had come through and had said that he wasn't, he was just coming through as a tourist and they saw something about Camp Vermont Canada, he wasn't lying. He was just naive about the requirements. They sent him back. So he said, no big deal. I live in Buffalo. I'll go over the other bridge. He went over the Peace Bridge instead. And he came to camp. And of course, what happens two days later, his name is Mink. It's not so usual. So when, <laughs> when, the, uh, when, the border, when the border agent came on the bus and checked to see young Mink's papers, they said, Wait, where's your dad? And he goes, oh, he works up at the camp. It was the same border agent that had turned him away. So that created a whole investigation and that created the, the requirement that we take all 27 of our staff, of our Americans who didn't have the right paperwork. And we worked to get them all chest x-rays. We worked to get them. We had to stop working at camp. Um, they, we, Howard Black, being a lawyer, was great to have him involved. He took them on a bus to, to, uh, <laughs> to Niagara. Um, they did all their paperwork. They came back and they were all kosher. But that was the summer of the deportation. Not an easy, not an easy thing to live through. And no, since no, then, no. I think the camp has been, we certainly were, and I think my successor directors have been much more careful about everybody getting their documentation. Yeah. Correct. I can, I can confirm that as part of the American contingency. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to take chest x-rays every year? I don't remember the chest x-rays, but yeah. that, I... That might I have gone mean, out with uh, the modern age. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> No, but the, you know, stopping at the border every summer to get my work permit. Um, I also remember as a, as a small camper, you know, being instructed by our bus moms on the way to camp bus parents and um you know if if someone comes on the bus you answer their questions everybody has to be quiet and respectful and right. it was a big deal i didn't realize at the time but to to cross the border and right. i think that it's a it's an interesting and timely question for for parents american parents of Ramah canada campers um today and and what the future will look like for those families. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I would love to see that camp. And one of the things I've told Jordan, our new director, is I would love to see that camp start to get many more kids back from Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Detroit and Buffalo and Rochester. Um, it's such the, the richness of the camp when it mixes small towns and large towns and Americans and Canadians is just amazing. Um, 
as you know, from all the relationships that you have, yeah, you know, yeah. kids from all over, with people, young with adults now from all over those, those communities. Can you tell us a funny story or a challenge of having your family up at camp with you? Well, one of the reasons I got a bicycle early on, I didn't, I didn't allow bicycles in camp. Right. Um, but I, you know, I was constantly walking around camp, going from one place to the other, either just to visit or to deal with an issue or to problem solve or to go to a meeting. And it's quite difficult when you have little kids, uh, particularly toddlers and babies who see you and want you. Yeah. Um, and I'm terribly busy <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to be there for everybody. Um, so one of the reasons I got a bicycle was that I could zip by. Some, some, thinks that some, some people think I got it because there were certain members of the staff that I didn't want to talk to that I could just go by and say <laughs> shalom and not stop and not stop and have a longer conversation. That's, it's really, it was really because of my kids. So I remember the times when like Carrie would be, you know, like see me coming by and like wave me off or, you know, uh, turn the kid around so that they didn't see me. Cause you know, daddy, I want my daddy. Yeah. Oh, so that's, that's one. I mean, one, uh, you know, having, having, watching your children grow up at camp is just wonderful. I remember basically having two seats in the Chararochel, one with my family and one with the Hanhala and spending, a, you know, a few minutes at the, at my family table, each dinner or meal, um, and then being with the Hanala, because you're, you're working, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly working. Um, I remember people coming up to me in the Chararocha when I'm at the family table and having to basically discipline myself to say to them, you know, I'm with my kids right now. Um, is it an emergency? Can it wait? And it always, almost always was not an emergency and it always, always could wait. But, you know, the Chararocha or dinner times time when people see you it's when the entire yeah. camp's together and yeah. they want to tell you that the pencils aren't sharpened for Pulat Erev or some other great crazy <laughs> emergency like that um, so I tell them to just I, I, I was not great at it um, I did create a tradition of eating Shabbat lunch in my home with my kids yeah. um, which was really great so I basically would take a couple hours off from Shabbat lunch to Mincha um, the problem is that, you know, Shabbat was always, it was less structured today, less structured over day and more, more bullying would happen or more fighting would happen or, you know, silliness and stuff we'd have to deal with. So I always remember getting to Mincha maybe 15 minutes early and every Rosh Hashanah sort of swarming me and just telling me what the issues were and how do we deal with this and how do we deal with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, being able to be with your family in such a wonderful, joyful setting like Ramah. Carrie is such a, Carrie is, having a wife who's such a camp person um, was so advantageous. She was a Yoetzit for, you know, all the years that I did it and many more. Um, so it was really a blessing watching Tali, you know, start in her camp years when I was still director. Um, just, just lots and lots of fun. And what's one of your, your favorite memories? from your years as director? I would say that Hanala meetings were just so fulfilling. I mean, I hate to, I hate to say meeting was, was one of my favorite experiences. You see, there are so many joyful experiences. I love playing basketball with the staff every day. Okay. Um, people would know that five o'clock, you don't interrupt Mitch. Unless you talk <laughs> 
<laughs> so when, when people would come up all the time to the basketball court and say, Mitch, you have a minute and pull me off the court. And I, and, and the rest of the play, Ooh, <laughs> they better have something serious here, you know? And I'm just going, Oh, I, gewalt, I can't believe it. Um, but I was pretty much able to keep to that, you know, routine of playing basketball every day at five o'clock, which was just sacred. Some, somehow there was not a sports parrot during that period of time. I don't know how we managed to do that, but we were, we were able to figure that one out. Um, I, I, I think that this, the idea of being with Han Hala or senior staff members, just to me, sitting with the, your, these people who've dedicated, you know, they're not, they're not 18, 19 year old kids anymore there for social reasons. They're there, as you know, Sid, they're there because they want to have an impact. Um, they're also having a great time, but they want to have an impact. So to be able to sit with and study Mishnah with and talk about the day's issues with and mentor individually with all these 21 to 25-year-olds, um, that very, very special, very privileged part of the job, mm-hmm. which I really, really remember well. special for us, let me tell you. Yeah, it's I'm powerful. Watching. Yeah, it is. It is. What do you think your your legacy is at Ramah Canada? That's a big word. Yeah. Legacy. Um, you know, it's funny. I recently uncovered, remember I hired Robert Sarner to create a camp newspaper? Um, Cole, 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 Cole Ramah. Cole Ramah. Cole Ramah. And... Um, it's funny because I went, when I went to, I created the same thing at Nash Ramah when I called it Kolot Ramah. We're still using that phrase Kolot Ramah for various things. But the Kol Ramah, I remember, I recently was looking through some old papers and I found the, uh, the Kol Ramah from my last summer and it had a whole interview with me in terms of what I thought was lasting about my, you know, I have to say that, <clears throat> I have to say that Tikva creating, bringing to, again, I didn't create Tikva, I brought it from other Ramah camps to Canada, that's really, really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think getting fundraising going for that camp um, is something that I'm very, very proud of. I think that um, instilling a little bit better sense of discipline um, from the camp that I heard about, you know, and um, from from years earlier, um, might have had might have had some impact. And I think just the looking at the camp, looking at the camp's physical plant and the structures and saying it was woefully inadequate. Mm. Um, and that goes hand in hand with fundraising, but being able to fill the camp um, with enrollment wise and build the camp up to secure buildings and add new facilities, that feels really good because that, that lasts well beyond, well beyond you. But if, you know, if my 11 years as director, um, you know, at the end of the 20th century, um, helped lead to Canada Ramah being a strong and even stronger place in the 21st century. It's just, it's just a privilege. Um, it's good, like I said before, all the great people I worked with there. Yeah. Well, Mitch, your tenure at Ramah Canada is so rich. There's so much to learn from it. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. My absolute pleasure. Yes, we're so we're so lucky to have heard from you. Um, and Thanks, the story continues. The story continues. Yes. For Canada Ramah, for me, for you, and for Ramah in general. One of the 
great success stories of North American Judaism. Shalom, and thank you for tuning in to Kol Barama. If you're looking for more information about Camp Ramah overnight and day camps, Israel programs, year-round events, and virtual offerings, please visit our website at www.camprama.org. Mm-hmm.